The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior, and I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats, and since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Belsky Brothers led the largest Jewish-led rescue operation of Jewish civilians in all of World War II. They saved over 1,200 men, women, and children, roughly 70% were women, children, and the elderly, by hiding them in the forests of western Belarusia, formerly Poland, currently Belarus, from 1942 to 1944, and through killing several hundred Nazi soldiers. Yeah, buddy. More than 20,000 descendants of the survivors the Belskis helped save are alive today because of the ingenuity, heart, and perseverance of these men and the bravery of those willing to join them. They led numerous attacks against the German forces, sabotaging their war and roundup efforts, killing their soldiers, earning a huge target on their heads in the process. They dodged bullets and grenades, survived in the wild, avoided capture over and over again while being hunted by thousands of armed soldiers. You ready for a little inspiration today? You ready to get a little angry? A little choked up? A little less of a Triple M flavor to today's suck, more of a Rage Against the Machine vibe. So fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Let's get pumped. Let's get some revolutionary blood flowing through our veins. Let's feel thankful just to be alive today. Life is what the Belsky brothers fought for. As we deep dive them today and go on a big emotional roller coaster of a suck today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Hey, Time Suckers. Hey, Space Lizards. Hey, Cult of the Curious, I'm Dan Cummins, a.k.a. The Master Sucker, and you are listening to Time Suck. And today's Time Suck is brought to you by longtime friend of the suck, Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon is a men's essentials brand that believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. Mac Weldon makes security blankets for your privates. They make sweet, sweet, secure homes for your butt and your cock and balls, okay? I love their 18-hour jersey boxer briefs. Soft, secure, snug, satisfying. So many S-words. And they're so easy to buy. Mac Weldon has a super intuitive, easy-to-use website to get those boxer briefs, those hoodies, socks, up your sock game, shirts, and so much more delivered fast and easy 
right to your door. If you don't like your first pair, you know, you can keep them and they will still refund you. That's who they are. That's how good Mac Weldon is. No questions asked. So go to MacWeldon.com, get 20% off using the promo code TIMESUCK. All right, suckers. Recording from that same hotel room that the bonus uh, Crowley episode was recorded in Bray, California again. Can't wait to get back to the Suck Dungeon in Coeur d'Alene this next week. Thanks to all, the other, uh, all of uh, you who came out to Brea over the weekend. So many new awesome gifts for the Suck Dungeon. So excited to put a lot of stuff on the walls. I got to put stuff up from Minneapolis still. Now I got stuff from Brea. It's going to look so sweet. Can't wait to get them all up. Get, a, get some pics posted at, at Time Suck Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter so you can see what's happening. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, and I can't wait to see what Cleveland has in store next week. Very excited. Hail Nimrod. Thanks for the recent iTunes reviews. Uh, I think by the time this thing's out, it's looking like it's going to be 3,000 reviews. It was like one or two away. I just checked before I recorded. That's that's so amazing. God, man, that's, that's really awesome. It really helps Time Suck stay in the charts, reach new listeners when you do that. All the reviews and ratings that you do everywhere, they help so much. So thank you for taking the time to do them. And thanks for the many five-star ratings. Uh, they don't make me feel like it's time to rest easy, by the way. Right? Just make me uh, hungry to earn more. Try and get better and earn more. Uh, tour dates, where am I going to be? Well, I'm going to be at Hilarities in Cleveland, Ohio next week. Right? March 22nd through 24th. Mr. John Huck kicking the show off. He was in Bray. I love working with him. So funny. Uh, get there, Cleveland. The Browns, man, they made some kick-ass trades this past week. Congrats on Jarvis Landry, right? Tyrod Taylor, get to him, fucking, you know, possible franchise QB. Sincerely hope you guys do some damage this upcoming season. Uh, yeah, more fun shows coming up fast. Charlotte, North Carolina, April 8th. Atlanta on the 9th. Birmingham on the 10th. Huntsville, Alabama. Come on, come on out, NASA. Let's talk about some flat earth. This is the flat earth tour happening. That's going to be on the 11th, Nashville on the 12th, Houston on the 13th, Dallas the 14th, San Antonio the 15th, Salt Lake City, 20th, 21st. San Francisco, Sacramento, Phoenix coming right up afterwards. Another live Tom's Time Suck Tomcast. Another live Time Suck podcast, Spokane on May 6th. And if you're not familiar with my stand-up, when you're thinking about checking out some dates on the Flat Earth Tour, uh, you can you can check out, you know, just for a sampling, either my most recent special, Don't Wake the Bear, available to watch on Amazon and elsewhere. It streams for free for Amazon Prime members. Or you can listen to my most recent uh, Pandora exclusive, just came out, Maybe I'm the Problem, that Pandora Premium listeners can listen to as a proper album by clicking a link that will be in this episode description. And people who don't even have Pandora Premium can click the same link. You know, you hear a little quick commercial and you get to listen to the album as an album. So much content, right? Just trying to fill your fucking head all the time. More tour dates at dancummins.tv. Time now for the Belsky Brothers. So who were the Belsky brothers? Well, they were Skippy, Lance, Gary, and Leonard. And before the war, they ran a barbershop just outside of Warsaw, where they made a decent living, and also sang in a popular barbershop quartet. If not for the war, they could have been as big as the Friends of Yesterday. They were mostly known in the Jewish club scene for their rendition of that old standard, Sweet Adeline. You're the flower of my heart, Sweet Adeline, Sweet Adeline. I almost, I almost had it. I almost had it. That last note was hard to hit. That's ridiculous. Uh, they did sing in. Uh, they did not sing in some corn cornball barbershop quartet. No, the brothers were Tuvia, uh, Soil, Zeus, and Aaron uh, Belsky. Uh, they're they're four of twelve children born to a miller, a dude who works in a grain mill, and his wife in a in the rural agricultural village of Stankovich near the uh, small city of Novogradok. Uh, they were the only Jewish family in the small Polish village that is now part of Belarus. 
And they rarely left the farm as children uh, because they were so scared of the very ugly, just monstrous-looking native people. Just Polish people living in the area, just hideous. As many of you know, uh, Polish people are very ugly, and they're as dumb as they are unattractive. And this village had the dumbest, ugliest Polacks in all of Poland. Uh, Mirrors actually had begun to be banned in 1903 because people would scare themselves. Uh, on Halloween, there was a local tradition started back in 1915 where the where local trick-or-treaters would dress up as non-Polish uh, attractive people who could speak clearly and intelligently since uh, the rest of the year, you know, they uh, spoke like brutes and just looked like traditional Halloween monsters. And if you're a first-time listener, I hope you're still listening <laughs> and I hope you realize I'm joking. Uh, my wife, Lindsay, is half Polish and it just amuses me greatly to uh, needlessly and undeservedly slander her heritage. Love you, Polish bastards. Love you, skis. Uh, but seriously, the Belskis, uh, they grew up in Stankovich, which is tiny enough not to show up under various alter- uh, alternative spellings, like on Google Maps, like at all. Like it just doesn't show up. Uh, it only shows up in searches related to the Belsky brothers, and then only shows up uh, as being referenced as the place of their birth. So while they were, uh, you know, the only Jewish family in this little area, I'm guessing there was also probably like four total families. Uh, it reminds me of places back in Idaho like Pinehurst and Rapid River where I grew up. Uh, Pinehurst, not the town of Pinehurst in the Silver Valley near Kellogg and Wallace, Idaho. No, I, uh, I, I live for a little bit in the Pinehurst about 50 miles south of Riggins. You would just tell people Riggins. And, and really you were because that's where you kind of would have all your friends and do everything. But, um, you know, Pinehurst, the, the actual Pinehurst where <laughs> we lived for like two years just had like a, a little church, a little cafe slash gas station slash mini store slash I think VHS. It was like a little bit of everything hybrid. Might have, been, might have even been the thrift shop as well. Um, and had about 10, 15 houses. No post office, no bank, no dentist. Uh, not many people who had ever even been to a dentist. Just that kind of place. Uh, I had several pr- friends that lived in Rapid River. A little neighborhood about five miles south of Riggins that had its own little store off and on as well. And again, doesn't show up on a map. Doesn't show up in a search. Just a little neighborhood only locals would know of by name. Guessing Stankovich was or is similar. Very small. Few farms uh, as opposed to a proper town of any sort. Now, uh, nearby uh, Novagrudak uh, or uh, Novadrudak, as it's now known, is an old, very well-documented little European city. goes uh, at least as far back as the 11th century. It was once sacked by the Mongols in 1241. And this town has, uh, you know, it's seen its fair share of occupiers over the years. The, the Swedes sacked the town in 1706, destroyed uh, Novadrudak Castle. Uh, Russians twice attacked and occupied the town during the... Uh, Russo-Polish War that was fought from 1654 to 1667. Uh, The town has seen its fair share of empires and rulers. It was the first capital of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania in the mid-13th century. You know, it's changed names, changed rulers, changed kingdoms, been sacked, been rebuilt. Uh, But not perhaps since the Mongols had seen an occupier so just fucking ruthless as the Nazis. Uh, It had a thriving pre-World War II Jewish population with roughly... uh, 5,000 Jews living there in 1900, approximately 20,000 by 1940. Uh, the Nazis would kill around 10,000 Jews in this uh, city in 1941 alone. Had a, had a total population of roughly 30,000 today, or it has, uh, the Nazis would occupy it for three years during World War II. And, and that would be the second time the Germans had taken it over. You know, They also occupied it for three years during World War I. So it had to have been doubly painful for some of the older residents, residents you know, just when they came back, just like, God damn it. These stupid German assholes are back again, and uh, and Novogradok is, is a town that's that's come uh, become recently known a little bit, been mentioned in some news stories in association with President Trump. Uh, when President Trump was criticized in 2017 for not reacting quickly enough to some incidents of anti-Semitism, his son-in-law Jared Kushner came to the president's defense by telling the story of his own Jewish grandmother's escape from Nazi occupy uh, occupation in the Soviet Union. 
now, Ray Kushner fled through a, a tunnel dug underneath the Jewish ghetto in, in this small town of uh, Novogradok. And she would make it to the Belsky camp in the woods and survive the war. Uh, the president's son-in-law would not be alive today if not for the heroism of the Belskis. Very interesting. And, uh, and and Russia is mentioned there because this little area, you know, just it changed hands so quickly, uh, as we'll see here in this story. It also became, you know, the, the property uh, of Russia and stuff. It was, you know, Polish, German, uh, uh, Russia, you know, <laughs> like just bouncing around. And what does the term ghetto mean? We keep saying this ghetto in today's uh, episode's context. Well, the term ghetto originated as far as like a Jewish ghetto, but the term ghetto originated from the name of the Jewish quarter in Venice, Italy, um, that shared that name. And Venetian authorities compelled the city's uh, Jews to live in this quarter, which was established in 1516. Now, in the 16th and 17th centuries, officials ranging from local authorities to the Austrian emperor ordered the creation of ghettos for uh, Jewish people in Frankfurt, Rome, Prague, and then other cities. So just a part of the city where Jewish people would have to live. Uh, designated to live. Uh, Nazi occupation authorities established their first ghetto in Poland in October 1939. The largest ghetto in Poland was the Warsaw Ghetto. In Warsaw, more than 400,000 Jewish people were crowded into an area of roughly 1.3 square miles. And the story of the Warsaw Ghetto, that deserves its own suck someday. I've been fascinated with that story for years. So the Belskis, you know, you got this, you got this family of Jewish farmers living outside this storied city at the outbreak of World War II. It's an area of no particular, you know, economic note or industrial note. You know, you got farmers, small city full of, you know, little various shops a small city is going to have back then. Grocers, cafes, banks, government buildings, tailors, carpenters, etc., etc. Uh, when it's not being sacked or occupied, sounds like a quiet rural place to live off the beaten path. And, and the main Belsky players in today's story, uh, again, are Tuvia, a, a soil, Zeus, and Aaron. Now, the oldest of the brothers, Tuvia, uh, he was elected as the leader of their group by family members in 1942 uh, when they would be hiding from the Nazis. He's tall, handsome, an avid reader, natural leader. Man, instills a sense of safety and confidence in those around him. He's charismatic, highly intelligent. Neighbors referred to him as the Clark Gable of the Belskis. Prior to World War II, Tuvia had been a corporal in the Polish army, knows how to fight, and he continually take, you know, whoever needed refuge uh, into their camp despite the risks. He was Daniel Craig's character in the movie Defiance, if you've seen that. Uh, which, of course, is about the Belskis. Second in command, Tatuvia, uh, is a soil, uh, led many fighters into sabotage mission, missions, which uh, was considered the go-to guy when something was needed. He was played by British actor Jamie Bell in the movie. Quieter, more reserved than his older brothers. Uh, had the war not been brought to his door, he would have been happy to stay on the family farm. And then you got Zeus, the third oldest brother, uh, born uh, four years after a soil. And uh, he was the brother in charge of gathering intelligence. He was a hothead. Prior to the war, his parents had to go negotiate with uh, local authorities on several occasions to keep them from arresting Zeus for, for getting into fights. He was more lighthearted of the three, even seen as a bit of a playboy for the time. He, he apparently had his fair share of forest wives while hiding, hiding in the woods from Nazis. He's handsome, confident, bit of a pistol, played by uh, Lee Schreibner in Defiance. And I think they played with the ages just a slightly in that uh, in that film because they, they flipped those brothers as far as uh, who seemed older in the movie. And then you got Iran Belsky, the youngest of the brothers involved in the uprising. He was just 14 when the war hit. Uh, his main job was to survive, but he would he would help gather intelligence, played by the young British actor George McKay in Defiance. And all these brothers had a reputation prior to the war for being tough. Uh, just like anti-Semitism was rife in Germany well before the war, you know, re-listened to last year's third bonus suck on the rise of the Third Reich for more on that. It was rife in pre-war Poland as well. And the Belskis weren't known to put up with it, man. They, they frequently got into fights with other local farm kids. They were proud to be Jewish, didn't put up with local Aryan bullshit. Uh, they were able to hold their own against the locals, live their lives, 
But then the Nazis came and just kind of changed everything, you know, really in 1941. Before we dig into the Belsky's direct encounters with the Nazis, the battles they fought against them, let's talk about the kind of people these dudes would be fighting. Uh, a couple tales from or about people, most of whom could have been time sucks uh, themselves or could be one day, you know, time suck uh, topics. Let's really establish how horrible the enemy the Belskis fought truly was. Uh, fellow Jewish-Polish citizen, uh, Gerda Weissman, did not fight back, was taken from another Polish city, Bielsko, in 1942 to the Gross Rosen death camp. Uh, she'd bounced from one camp to another for the remainder of the war, working in textiles and possessing a, a valuable skill, or at least a skill the Nazis you know, found valuable, was the only reason she survived the war. Uh, by the end of the war, Gerda Weissman was one of the lucky ones uh, who survived and was liberated. She left the camp the day before her 21st birthday, and she weighed 68 pounds. 68 pounds, uh, 20 years old. Yeah, and she wasn't, you know, three foot two. Uh, of the 2,000 other girls who had recently marched with her, only 120 survived. 120 out of 2,000. Uh, she saw girls so frozen from the cold uh, that their toes would literally break off. And they'd have to continue to march on command or be shot. And this is as the Nazis are retreating from Allied forces and just, you know, moving people from camp to camp. Fuck. She'd recently been marched for six weeks straight by force on one of these many Nazi death marches to a different camp. You know, she hadn't bathed in three years when she was rescued. Her hair had turned white. She was still wearing uh, the ski boots her father had given her shortly before she was taken by the Nazis, insisting they would help her survive, which they did. Her father was also taken by the Nazis and was killed in a concentration camp early in the war. Every family member she had would be killed by the Nazis. The U.S. soldier who uh, held, held a door open for her to let her out of the last camp she was held prisoner in was U.S. Lieutenant Kurt Klein, a Jewish man who was born in Germany and immigrated to the United States to escape Nazism before the war, then fought for the U.S. Army. Uh, both of his parents had been killed by the Nazis in Auschwitz, and Goethe fell in love with her liberator, and the two became engaged in September 1945. They would be married in 1946, and they would stay married for 56 years until his death in 2002. Uh, Goethe's autobiographical account of the Holocaust, All, my, All But My Life, uh, 1957 was adapted for the 1995 short film When Survivor Remembers, received an Academy Award and an Emmy, and an Emmy Award, uh, and selected for the National Film Registry. On February 15, 2011, Klein was presented with the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest civilian award in the United States. And as of this recording, she's alive and well at 93 years old. And she's one of the many, many bright lights that the Nazis assigned zero worth to, zero value to as a human being, and were just more than comfortable with sniffing out. Snuffing out, sniffing. Well, you know, <laughs> I don't know what's my word switches these days. And that's about as happy as a tale as you're going to hear uh, about survival. You know, uh, and today's suck. You know, despite all the death around her, Gerda at least lived. Former Nazi Oscar Groening knows of many, many others that did not live. Oscar Groening, aka the bookkeeper of Auschwitz, served in the SS at Auschwitz from 1942 until 1944, and then was brought to trial at 93 years of age in 2015. He was finally found and brought to trial in 2015. He was tried with 300,000 counts of accessory to murder and then sentenced to four years in prison, which uh, in incarceration length, the court determined appropriate given his age. Uh, I don't agree. Uh, you know, he's still alive uh, and in prison today and is set to get out next year. I, you know what? I, I think once you're an adult, you know, age shouldn't get you leniency for past crimes. Fucking you, what you did is what you did. Anyway, Oscar is one of the few Germans who has been willing to speak about his role in the Holocaust in, in an effort to educate deniers. Uh, did you know, by the way, that deceased former chess wizard Bobby Fischer, man with a genius-level IQ, uh, was a Holocaust denier, by the way. 
That's, uh, I did not know that's insane. To, well, former Nazi Oscar wants to convince these deniers of the reality of this atrocity before he dies. Uh, and we're going to be talking about Holocaust deniers a little later with our idiots of the internet. Oh my God, those people make me fucking sick. Uh, so this is like his way of making some amends. And here's some of his quotes. One of them is, uh, I want to tell these deniers that I have seen the crematoria. I have seen the burning pits. And I want to assure you that these atrocities happened. I was there. And he says, a child who was lying there was simply pulled by the legs and chucked into a truck to be driven away. And when it screamed like a sick chicken, they bashed it against the edge of the truck so it would shut up. Jesus. An interesting uh, pronoun choice, uh, by the way, as well, right? All these years later, and he still refers to this child as an it. Not he, not she, it. I guess it's a little easier to think about this having happened to an it rather than to a he or a she. Uh, so, you know, former piece of shit who at least feels enough remorse to confess now. Uh, and that at least makes him a much better person than this next example. Ilsa Koch, uh, the witch of Buchenwald, uh, Buchenwald, uh, yeah, was also known as the bitch of Buchenwald, the, the butcher widow, the beast of Buchenwald. And she was a serious piece of shit, man. She did stuff that would make uh, even Chikatilo cringe. Her actions and reputation have created a terrifying legend that, you know, had you not already heard about other monsters on Time Suck, may, may seem hard to believe. Uh, Ilsa was a native German born in Dresden, a bookkeeping clerk who wanted to marry SS Colonel Karl Koch uh, in 1936. Koch, I guess, instead of just Koch. <laughs> a man who would quickly build his own evil reputation, and, and her marriage to Koch uh, would give her access to prisoners at the uh, Sassachhausen camp in uh, Ohanienburg, Germany, near Berlin. And then later the Buchenwald camp near Weimar, uh, Germany, where she becomes uh, part of a kind of, or she becomes sort of a volunteer commandant. She was technically a guest, but that just wasn't enough for her to sit on the sidelines. This sadistic piece of shit was known to ride through camp on her horse, arbitrarily whipping prisoners just for fucking sport. I imagine she had a big smile on her face while she did that. You know, she was just living in a, just an evil sadist paradise. And whipping was the least of her crimes. Her greater crimes included creating a collection of lampshades, gloves, and books made from the human skin of the 40 prisoners she was rumored to have murdered for those particular uses. God. Uh, she was an American, you know, skin wearer, uh, Ed Gein's just fucking dream girl. Ugh. I, I just, I imagine Ed was familiar with her work probably actually uh, as he studied Nazi war crimes extensively and was fascinated with the uh, uh, supposed use of, of human skin. So Jesus Christ. She was rumored to particularly enjoy tattooed skin. It was also rumored that she made or at least used soap made from the fat of prisoners. Whew. Uh, shortly after the liberation of the Buchenwald uh, camp, a war correspondent, Jean Curvan, observed that parchment was displayed inside the main gate that was, in actuality, uh, strips of tattooed flesh. A camp doctor and cock had them, uh, Koch had them collected as part of, uh, you know, uh, uh, her fixation, kind of this. And, and she'd be one of the first prominent Nazis to be tried for war crimes following the war, and a witness at her trial said the following All prisoners with tattooing on them were to report to the dispensary. After the prisoners had been examined, the ones with the best and most artistic specimens were killed by injections. The corpses were then turned over to the pathological department where the desired pieces of tattooed skin were detached from the bodies and treated further. <sighs> Man, her husband Carl was also, as you would imagine, a complete and total piece of shit. He was such a piece of shit, he was actually killed before the war by fellow Nazis. Uh, before the war ended, excuse me. That's how you know someone's a real scumbag, like when they're a Nazi who discuss other Nazis with their behavior. Uh, he was investigated for corruption, fraud, embezzlement, drunkenness, sexual offenses, and a murder, and sentenced to death by firing squad for shaming the SS. I didn't know that was possible. Uh, in April of 1945. 
Well, Elsa was sentenced to life in prison for her war crimes and then uh, had her sentence reduced to only four years. When, uh, you know, some became convinced she was innocent of some of her crimes, but then the sentence was overturned and she was resentenced to life in prison. And then in 1967, uh, she hanged herself while still incarcerated. She had been under the delusion for some time that Jewish prisoners were attempting to harm her in the middle of the night. How fucking great is that? A little bit of karma there, bitch. A little bit of karma came back to her in the end, right? I hope uh, real shadow people were tormenting the fuck out of her in her final days. Why can't this be the end to the story of every single Nazi, to the Mengele's, to all of them, you know? Tormented by their past crimes to the point they kill themselves once they can no longer handle the constant fear. Hard to imagine a more satisfying death for these people. Uh, tortured by the ghost of those, you know, you yourself tortured. You know, maybe Shadow Bojangle showed up. Chewed on her soul a bit before she ended it all. Maybe our fearless mascot just snarled and snapped from the darkness of her mind until she couldn't take it anymore. One can hope. One can hope. And Ilsa is an important name in the Holocaust denier movement. The reason her first life sentence was reduced to four years was because no hard evidence was presented in court regarding the uh, items such as the lampshades being made out of actual human skin. In fact, some lampshades were presented that were made out of goat skin. And deniers point to this as evidence, uh, you know, as part of like the proof that the Holocaust is all made up. However, uh, numerous witnesses testified at the trials, all of them. Uh, as far as all of her trials, that they had witnessed her picking various prisoners based on their skin, and those prisoners were then, you know, never seen alive again, and they'd seen, you know, these these, these skin parchments like in the camp. So, uh, not sure exactly where the switcheroo with the goat skin came in, but I don't think, uh, you know, evidence of that exact thing not being presented in court just, you know, makes makes it look like the whole, the whole thing was fake. Uh, yeah, yeah. She, plenty of witnesses, again, reported her being just the personification of evil. And, and speaking of evil personified, let's talk about the angel of death. One of the most infamous examples of a complete Nazi piece of shit is, of course, Dr. Joseph Mengele, uh, the angel of death. And he was one of approximately 30 doctors at Auschwitz during World War II at that death camp. And by the end of the war, he'd worked his way into the top position as a, a chief camp physician of Auschwitz uh, through outrageous acts of cruelty. There wasn't anything this, he wasn't willing to do to a Jewish person to help the Nazi war effort or just to satisfy his own sadistic curiosity. And he'll get a full suck uh, someday for sure. As a physician, <clears throat> excuse me, one of Mengele's required tasks was to kind of sort incoming prisoners as they arrived. This was called selection. And, and prisoners were sorted into two categories for the most part, you know, those to be killed immediately and those to be used for slave labor. Uh, he, so he was a literal just like the face of terror. He was the face of, you know, God in his, in his, in his way uh, to all these prisoners, you know. He would often attend selection proceedings when off-duty, right? You, you never take time off when you're doing what you love. How fucked up is that? Clearly enjoyed the face-to-face process of deciding who got to live and who got to die. Love playing God. For a time, he was also in charge of overseeing the use of Zyklon B gas and the gas chambers used for mass ex- ex- execution. And Mengele was particularly focused on the use of twins in medical experimentation, uh, prior to the war, he had worked under another physician and used twins to study a variety of things. It was ideal to have two people with identical genetic makeup uh, when you wanted to study the effects of a variety of things in relation to environment and hereditary or heredity. These studies were performed under strict protocol with approved means. He was also in, you know, uh, intrigued with heterochromia or heterochromia. That's when people are born with two different colored eyes. Uh, he was also uh, obsessed with dwarves, people with physical deformities, and much and much of his research centered around eugenics and the goal of proving the superiority of an Aryan race, which is nonsense uh, in so many ways. But as we learned here on the suck, like race is just a social construct, right? I can't emphasize that enough. Trace trace the shit you know back far enough, and we're all just we're all African, you know. Germans weren't always in Germany; they didn't always you know look like they do. 
It's just this constant, you know, state of evolution and, and changing as we, as, you know, historically as tribes of people moved from one continent to another in different parts of continents and then interbred. It's like, it's not, there's never been this fucking ridiculous notion of just, you know, people looking like they look now and the fucking blue eyes and the blonde hair just going straight back into, into the beginnings of their fucking Aryan, you know, Garden of Eden or some bullshit. It's just nonsense. It's all, it's all nonsense. We're just meat sacks. We're all meat sacks. We're all just different shades of the same sack. Which sounds weird when you say that sentence alone. You're just different shades of the same sack. Sounds like nutsack. In, in a way, we do come from there. So, you know, I guess that's apt. Uh, anyway, Dr. Uh, Fuckhead was attempting to learn how to enhance the number of racially desirable twin pregnancies. And experiments included purposely infecting one twin with a disease to watch comparative health, forced blood transfusions from one twin to another, extracting healthy teeth to study, sewing twins together in an attempt to create conjoined twins and then separating them. Holy shit. Drug experimentation, chloroform injections to the heart, injecting pigmentation into the eyes in an attempt to alter color, unnecessary limb amputation, and so much more. He and Imperial Japan's Dr. Shiroishi would have been besties, right? I'm surprised those two pieces of shit weren't pen pals. Uh, At the end of the war, Mengele was in U.S. custody, but was quickly released because he wasn't recognized by the soldiers who held him despite his well-documented crimes, despite his name being on a list of wanted war criminals, which sounds sloppy. Uh, obviously a huge bummer, but to be fair, the Allies were grabbing just a shitload of war criminals. You know, thousands and thousands of Nazis at the end of the war, and I'm guessing, you know, he was quite the smooth-talking sociopathic weasel. And, and, and it's not like, you know, uh, they had high-res color photos of everybody back then. So, he, you know, he escaped. He hid out for four years in Bavaria working as a farmhand before uh, immigrating to Argentina. First, he lived there under an alias, but as time went on, eventually returned to Europe under his own name, even traveled back to Europe on vacation, securing an authentic German passport. Once Nazi hunters found him, Argentina was put under pressure for extradition. When they finally granted it, he slipped away again, this time to the German enclave of Colonius Unidas in Paraguay, where he lived to the ripe old age of 67. I mean, that's not crazy old, but, you know, fucking way too old for him. And then died from a stroke while swimming in the coastal resort of uh, Bertilga Bertil- <laughs> in uh, 1979. Bertilga, there we go. Maybe there are rumors that his death was faked, that he lived even longer. It's fuck, man. Full suck for sure someday on that creep. Why, could, why couldn't that bastard die like Ilsa Koch, right? Why couldn't he just be tormented by fucking shadow monsters and then just be pulled into hell or some shit? Oh, man. Uh, so I just wanted to give you a little sampling, a little taste of the types of people that the Belsky brothers were fighting, all manner of terrible things, you know, being being done to the Jewish people in the name of winning a war by, by soldiers, uh, by the German soldiers, you know, and, and soldiers have done all all kinds of things, you know, and, and throughout, you know, war is inherently just brutal from all different types of countries, but man, the Nazis were especially just, just fucked up. Uh, also especially good at what they did, which was just killing a preposterous amount of people, which included an insane amount of non-combatants. Right? In World War II, the Nazis would kill at least 1.9 million non-Jewish Polish civilians during the, the war. And in addition, the Germans murdered at least 3 million Jewish Polish citizens. And then, and then overall, uh, historians agree they killed around 6 million Jewish people uh, in the war. They'd also kill around 7 million Soviet civilians including uh, 1.3 Soviet Jewish civilians, which are included in that 6 million uh, you know, figure. They, they'd also take around 3 million Soviet prisoners of war, right, including Ukrainian Nightmare and the butcher of Rostov, Andrei Chikatilo's father, if you recall that piece of shit, which I'm guessing most of you do from times like episode 57. They killed 312,000 Serb civilians from Croatia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, 
They'd murder up to 250,000 people with disabilities living in various European institutions. They'd butcher uh, about a, about 200, 220,000 of the Roma people, gypsies, just under 2,000 Jehovah's Witnesses. They'd execute at least 70,000 repeat criminal offenders uh, and so-called ant, uh, asocials. They, they'd kill an undetermined amount of political opponents and resistance activists, hundreds if not thousands, on the grounds of being homosexual. You know, They wreaked fucking havoc on mid-20th century Europe, and, and perhaps no civilians fought back more effectively than the Belsky brothers. And, and before we get into their incredible fight, uh, let's check in with a quick word uh, from today's sponsor. Time Suck is brought to us today by Chikatilo's Rasslin Academy. At Chikatilo's Rasslin Academy, students of all ages, but mostly students younger than 18, are instructed in all manner of Chikatilo wrestling techniques. Now, Chikatilo wrestling is all about drawing power from one's pelvis, uh, limp pelvic thrusts, groin shame shimmies, clenched buttock wiggles, communist cock slaps, all patented Chikatilo wrestling moves designed to confuse and then, of course, come upon your opponent. Use the promo code TIMESUCK. At checkout, get 30% off an eight-week lesson package of lessons between now and Labor Day. You'll also get a free uh, bottle of bottom-shelf Ukrainian Desolation and Despair Vodka and a limited-edition pair of patented Chikatilo sweatpants crafted with extra room in the crotch for pre-match limp penis tugging. Purchase in the next 10 days, and you'll also get a free, what well, a big deal, uh, Chikatilo water bottle complete with a straw and capable of ever standing up straight that you have to vigorously jerk to even get a few drops of water out. So what's this big deal? Uh, buy a Chikotillo wrestling package today. Uh, you love to wrestle. It'll be so much fun for you. Of course, Time Suck is not brought to you by that. Sorry, uh, shit just got so heavy. I needed to lighten it up a bit uh, for you serious suckers out there. Now, if you're, confu- <laughs> if you're a confused new listener uh, wondering how that commercial could even possibly be funny, uh, maybe check out the back catalog. Listen to a couple of Chikatilo episodes. <laughs> Start with the Chikatilo and work, and hopefully it'll be funny to you by the end. Uh, no. Uh, Time Suck is actually brought to you by Away Travel. Away Travel offers high-quality luggage that are designed to be resilient, resourceful, and essential to the way you travel. I have an Away carry-on, and it's awesome. Away luggage is available uh, in a variety of colors and four sizes, including carry-on sizes like mine that are compliant with all major U.S. airlines and their new lithium battery policies. The Away suitcase is lightweight and made with premium German polycarbonate that's unrivaled in its strength and impact resistance. And, and good Germans making these suitcases, not the ones we've been talking about on today's Time Suck. Uh, <laughs> not to mention, these suitcases feature a TSA-approved combination lock, four 360-degree spinner wheels, and a patent-pending compression system to help overpackers. I love uh, my away travel suitcase, man. And I, and, I, and I love the compression system. These little straps that kind of go over this flat rectangle that you just, you, you know, you pull the straps and it just pushes this little rectangle down onto your clothes and just compacts all your clothing. It's crazy how much more you can get into one little little suitcase when uh, when you got these bad boys. Better yet, both sizes of the carry-on are able to charge anything that's powered by a USB cord. Single charge will uh, power your iPhone five times, and, and that's true. I've tried it. Uh, I like slipping my iPhone uh, underneath the top handle, and then I just have it plugged in. And that way, just as I'm walking to the gates, I'm wheeling my luggage to a different gate. It's just being charged. So try away tra- uh, away for 100 days. Vibe with it. Travel with it. Instagram it. And if at any point you decide it's not for you, you just return it for a full refund. So that's pretty easy. Uh, shipping is free within the lower 48 states. And thanks to Away's lifetime warranty, if anything breaks, they're going to fix it. So you got nothing to lose. So for $20 off uh, a new suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash timesuck. Use the promo code timesuck during checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash timesuck. Promo code timesuck for $20 off your Away suitcase. 
All right, suckers. Sponsors and background out of the way. Let's jump into the Bilskis. Incredible tale, an epic fight for life in a time suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. In 1902, the first Bilski, uh, Sandheim, is born. Uh, and then between 1906 and 1927, the four brothers central to today's tale are born. All to David and Biela Bilski, uh, who had 12 children in total, 10 sons, two daughters. They were a family of millers and grocers living in Stankovich, near the small city, as we said before, of Novogradok. And uh, the Bilskis owned a mill, farmed the land, horses, cows, chickens, geese, also helped support the family. Uh, the Bilski uh, mill stood at the river's edge. Uh, the barn and several sheds were close to the mill, while the living quarters were further away and uh, partly to the side of the rest of the de- uh, dwellings. The Bilski home consisted of a wooden two-room hut. Yeah, two rooms. One room was only big enough to hold a medium-sized bed, uh, and there slept the parents, uh, Bella and David. Each room had a small window, unfurnished clay door. From outside, uh, uh, a door led into the main room that functioned as a kitchen, dining room, living room, bedroom for other kids. Jesus. To the right of this big room was a large built-in stove that served as a cooking stove, an oven, a heater, a place to rest. During the winter months, the warmth emanating from its stone surface made it a cozy little sleeping place. Next to the stove, a door led to a smaller room and a few wooden beds hugging the remaining walls. The center of this room was dominated by a rectangular table, two wooden benches at opposite end, uh, sides. At the end of the table stood armchairs reserved for each parent. Although the furnishings were sparse, the room was crowded without a free wall devoid of a single luxury item. Man, because of limited space and the number of kids, each bed had to accommodate more than one occupant. Warm weather, the barn would offer additional sleeping space, easing the overcrowding. These casual visitors, you know, uh, <laughs> or excuse me, though casual visitors now wonder how such a large family can fit into this limited space. The Belskis uh, gave no thought to this matter. Uh, born, you know, over a 25-year span, some of the children would leave home before the birth of the others. At no point did their hut accommodate the full family of 14. Yeah, but probably had nine or 10 there, you know, at all times. Uh, Tuvi had two older brothers, the first being born in 1902. Uh, Aaron, uh, the youngest, slipping out in uh, 1927. Man, holy shit, this poor woman. Popping out babies for a quarter of a century. I feel truly terrible for her vagina. I feel like it probably could have qualified uh, for disability just on its own by 1927. Uh, Twelve kids, man, in a two-room hut. And again, they weren't all there at the same time. But I, I bet I bet at least nine were there at the same time. And that's about fucking six too many. About five, six too many. Man, no thank you. How did they ever find time to make more kids after the first few were born? You'd have to be either quick or real quiet or both. Uh, my grandpa Ward... My mom's dad came from a family like that. I mean, I just, I can't imagine as a parent trying to raise that many kids and provide for all of them. Just reading that makes me so glad that my old sperm tubes are tied off. They're re- put out to pasture. They're retired. I feel like, I feel like I don't uh, spend nearly enough time with the two kids that I have. You know, I want to spend more time with Kyler Monroe. I can't imagine, you know, if they were just fucking two of 10 and as forgetful as I am, I can't imagine keeping them all straight. I, f- I feel like if I had 12 kids, there'd be at least one kid that I would just always just forget about. Just, all right, looks like everybody's here. Let's, uh, let's head into town, gang. But, but, Papa, what about Alexander? Ale- Alexander? Uh, name sounds familiar. Can't quite place it. He's, he's your son, Papa. Really? I have a son named Alexander? That's wonderful. Wait, is he the one, little one with the rat tail and the kind of pointy ears? 
Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, he fucking rubs me the wrong way. Daddy Alexander, he kind of weirds me out. Kind of weirds me out. Let's let's leave him. You know, we already, we already got eleven kids. It's already too many. Uh, no, no one's gonna miss him. No one's gonna miss him. Let's let's come on. Let's go. Let's go. Uh, so yeah, so big Jewish family, early twentieth century Poland, living on a crowded farm with with nothing but non-Jewish neighbors, many of whom were strongly anti-Semitic. Uh, but before the Nazi occupation, you know, the the family would hold their own against those people, and uh, you know, and get along with the the community. People that would give them shit, they'd handle long before the war. The Belskis, they were known to be tough, man. Take no shit kind of bunch. The more I read about them, uh, the more I just began to love and admire them. Uh, like, check out this childhood tale. This is fucking awesome. I wish, I wish I had a tale like this from my childhood. Like, for real. You know, this is, uh, this is Zeus recalling, kind of defending the family farm. He, he uh, there was just some asshole, uh, some, some Chuck, for those of you who, who've already listened to my Feel the Heat uh, secret stand-up album. This huge asshole uh, had some land that bordered the Belsky property. Had a reputation, being nasty and greedy, someone to be avoided at any cost. Each year, this neighbor uh, would, would would mow just a few more inches of the Belsky's meadow and then claim it as his, stealing a little bit of land each summer. Zeus Belsky said, we grew up among the peasants. We, we knew them. We knew how to fight. My father was quiet, gentle. Mother was also a friendly person. Father used to say that with fine people, we have to be good and proper, but with bad people, we have to be bad. We would not let others push us around. We were never afraid. That was the kind of family we were. But in this case... David Bielski, uh dad, did not feel like a fight was in order. He felt that the amount of land lost was so small that it wasn't worth bothering about. And so he advised his son just to ignore the matter. Trivia, uh, or, or, trivia, <laughs> Tuvia, Tri- you know, missed, uh, trivia, that'd be a fucking weird name. No, Tuvia, Zeus, some other brothers, he disagreed to them. It was a question of principle. So one day, uh, when he's about 15, Tuvia, uh, followed by his younger brothers, came to cut the grass. They were starting to work at the edge, you know, reestablish it along the uh, edge of their property, push a little bit back into this asshole's land, you know, push back into their land that this guy was taking uh, near this, you know, neighbor's meadow. And when they went to work, Captain Dickhead, he burst out of his hut, screaming at the top of his lungs that they were now on his land and that they were trespassing. And then with a chuckle, uh, Tuvia remembered, uh, he thought that if he screamed, I would get scared. In his hand, he held a scythe. He shouted, I will kill you. But I stood there laughing, which made him more furious. When he came closer, I reached for my scythe. And with it, I hit his. He lost his balance, landed on his back. When he was on the ground, I began to hit him with my hands. Four local farmhands came to look. They stood there amused, laughing loudly at the man's misfortune. (laughs) That day, I gave him such a beating that we did not see him for two weeks. I was young then, a teenager, but I was big and strong. I was not afraid of the non-Jews and fought hard whenever one of them tried to wrong me. That, (laughs) That is so awesome. I love this family. Didn't take shit from anyone. Oh man, how, how I would love to beat one of my neighbors so badly that they just didn't come outside for two weeks. Oh man, fucking Chuck. <laughs> That's one neighbor I have. Oh, that'd be so great. If he just did something, he started screaming at me and then he went to hit me with something and I just knocked him down to the ground and then just fucking whomped him just for, you know, while other people watched and laughed. Other people from the area, people that are going to see him later and just laugh every time they see him, laugh when he comes out with his black eye, you know, because he was a dumb shit that tried to start something over some nonsense and then got his ass whooped. God, that'd be fucking so good. And I'm thinking about how good that would be at like, you know, at 40 now. I can't imagine at like 18 how good that would have felt, you know, when you're even angrier, <laughs> when you get all, the, get all the hormones raging around and you get even more fired up. You know, I say that, I, I do, I actually feel like I probably get more fired up now. I don't know what's wrong with me. I have some weird uh, whatever whatever regulates your your uh, ability to not be fired up and should calm you as you get older uh my brain doesn't have that anyway uh yeah they didn't take shit man as i said earlier in the episode they're living outside of navagodek uh this old town it's been ruled by a variety of rulers throughout its long history 
town recently, you know, been under siege, occupied numerous times for, from 1915 to 1918, World War One, you know, under German control for a bit in 1919, under Polish control, uh, Polish-Bolshevik War, fell under the, the Soviet Red Army in 1920, then 1921, fucking ceded back to Poland. By the time World War II was in swing, 1939, you know, uh, it's, it's just been battled for years anywhere, you, you you know, but it's not a place, you know, you wanted to be just constant war. It's had a well-established Jewish quarter though, just over 5,000 Jewish community members in the early 1900s. And then in the fall of 1939, uh, for a brief, brief period before the Nazis arrived, the red army of Russia, you know, took over this homeland as, uh, as I just uh, stated, uh, as, uh, with those dates, you know, it was known as, uh, Western Belarusia, Belarusia. And again, uh, you know, today this land is known as Belarus. And while the Russians weren't as bad as the Nazis, they also weren't pro-Jew. Uh, I feel like, I don't know how much Defiance really touched on that that movie. Um, they quickly abolished you know, Jewish political parties, outlawed Jewish participation in various jobs and academic roles by labeling uh, the Jewish people as politically undesirable. Which, you know, in that whole uh, communist, communist Stalin uh, system, you know, which is a, a way to, if you got labeled that, you know, you're, they were worth nothing now and they could just kind of take your property. Uh, they could deport you. They put, sent some Jews and some uh, Poles who didn't adhere to their new regime to the to the Siberian gulags. Uh, 1939, Tuvi and his wife lived in nearby uh, Sibotniki uh, and owned a small shop that collect, uh, collected and transported scrap metal to foundries. So they had this weird little niche business. And then the Russians came and confiscated their business and added them to the politically undesirable list. Uh, but I guess at least they weren't being rounded up into camps. You know, Tuvia went into hiding from Russian authorities. His wife, who had soon divorced, stayed in uh, Zabotniki uh, to try and uh, wait things out. And then the Germans came in 1941, and shit went from bad to worse. On June 22nd, 1941, the Germans began their march uh, to the Bilskis uh, with Operation Barba, Barbarossa, uh, which begins with the Germans invading Belarusia in the Soviet Union. Adolf Hitler launches his armies eastward in a massive invasion of the Soviet Union. Three great army groups with over 3 million German soldiers, 150 divisions, 3,000 tanks, smash across the frontier into Soviet territory. The invasion covers a front from the North Cape to the Black Sea, a distance of about 2,000 miles. And we touched on this in Time Suck 71, the, the Joseph Stalin suck, Hitler breaking the non-aggression pact he'd had with Stalin. You know, they would... This would end as a military disaster for Hitler to the relief of the world, but not before costing millions of innocent lives and sending the Belsky brothers into the role of heroes. And uh, in late June of 1941, Zeus, Tuvia, and uh, Asoil are called by the local Polish military to resist the Germans, but the military quickly disbands and they're on their own. Uh, the Russians began their retreat eastward. They were caught off guard, you know, again by this attack. They thought they had that non-aggression, you know, uh, treaty. And, uh, and, w- and within days of the initial German attack, they're just fucking, they're heading, they're heading east. And, and many uh, Jewish people go with them, feeling that life under the Russians, bad as it was, would at least be better than life under the Germans, which was true. Two of the Bielski children, Estelle and Joshua, would follow them and survive. The rest remained, and David claimed the war would not last forever, and that Germany would lose. And he was right. Unfortunately, the war would last long enough to destroy almost his entire family, though. In July of 1941, laws are passed that require Jews to wear stars on the front and back of their clothes by the Nazis, prohibiting them from walking on the sidewalks along with other various just kind of ridiculous rules. In August 1941, pro-Nazi police come to the Bilski family home seeking information on the brothers, Tuvia, Zeus, and the soil, uh, who didn't share their father's trust that everything would get better. And, uh, you know, and they were actively hiding from the Nazis. They were... You know, staying in, in secret at the homes of non-Jewish people, obtaining false IDs, that sort of thing, just kind of constantly on the move. And, and it was easy at this time for officials to know which Jews were missing because Jews had been held under close watch, 
you know, way before the Nazis got there, you know, uh, thanks in part to the Russians and, and due to a variety of just, you know, sources before them, just census records, synagogue records, neighbors, school records, etc. And the Nazis wanted all local Jews to be identified and accounted for. And when the Bielski father, David, doesn't give them the information they want, uh, he's beaten and his ribs are broken with a rifle. Fall of 1941, life begins to worsen rapidly in the area. Uh, the younger brothers of Tuvia, Zeus, and Asoil, uh, named this Yakov and Abraham, they're arrested and killed, these two Bielski brothers, in October because they won't give any information about their older brother's whereabouts. Uh, Jews are now going missing and being visibly killed daily. The sound of gunfire, constant. Yellow stars now have to be worn by Jewish citizens all the time. Their valuables are, are being forced, uh, forcibly taken, handed over to the Nazi soldiers. You know, still, the Bielski parents refuse to leave their home. Then on December 8th, 1941, Nazi officials gather over 6,000 Jews in the Novogradoc district and begin the selection process. Jews sent to the left have been chosen to be executed immediately. Those sent to the right will be deported to the ghettos. Now, of course, no one knows this at first. Local Jewish families not present for the selection are rounded up. When the Bielskis don't show, Nazi officers head to their home, and young Aaron uh, is at home when the officers come. He hides behind a tree and watches in fear as his parents and two of his brothers are drugged from the home and forced into wagons, and they would never be seen again. A massive grave had been dug prior to the selection process, and those deemed unfit for the ghettos for whatever reason, roughly 5,000 of the 6,000 Jewish people forced into this pit uh, before the soldiers open fire. Uh, witness Sonia Oshman describes the mass execution years later in a Belsky Brothers documentary saying, it was a big grave, very long one. They told the people to get in and they were shooting. The people who got the bullet, they were lucky. The ones who didn't had to die to suffocate, buried alive. The Gentile people that they lived around saw the ground was moving. It was constantly moving. It took more than a week for all of them to die. Holy fuck, Helena... You understand what what she's saying there? Like, they fucking they kill these people. You know, just you put them in this pit, shoot them up, just start throwing the dirt over them, whether they're fully alive or I'm serious, you know, t- you know, totally dead or not. You know, some of them still alive, wounded. You know, still alive. Some of them probably not even wounded, just you know, just missed, but just you know, uh, other other people's bodies and dead bodies or wounded bodies are on top of them, and then they just throw the dirt over them. And then that's it. And there was like people would see the earth just like moving as people down underneath it are trying to fucking get out. Oh, my God. <sighs> and this is, yeah, where the Belsky parents die in this pit of despair. And and, and so also uh, die uh, Zeus, Zeus's wife and infant daughter also die there. And if you're wondering, why didn't the Nazis just put all the local Jews into that pit? Uh, why kill, you know, 5,000 of the 6,000? Why not, why not kill all of them? Why set up that ghetto? Well, because ghettos were assets to the German war effort. They didn't just put them in these sealed off neighborhoods and then just leave them alone. The ghetto supplied free labor and the production of various goods for the Nazis that would help be helpful in the war effort. The policy was called rescue by labor for a time before the late stages of the war when a higher and higher percentage of Jews would be killed just for being Jewish, regardless of ability, certain Jewish community leaders were able to convince Nazi leaders to allow them to live so they could help to, to kind of prove their value. What a fucked up position to be in. Uh, life in the ghettos wasn't much better than death. You know, once families entered through the gates, there was no, no plan for organization for living. There was, you know, five or six families would end up just sharing a small space. Some families would be split up. You know, comfort was nowhere. Food was going to be very scarce. If someone attempted to talk to someone outside the ghetto or try to get them food from the other side, they were just shot. Despite this, the peasants often came to the border to trade food for gold and valuables that had been smuggled into the ghetto by Jewish prisoners. It was a small risk for them. You know, they just get in a little bit of trouble, but very large risk for the, for the Jewish person. You know, they could, they could be, they'd be killed if they were seen. But the risk of trading, you know, their gold for some bread was worth it. Man, 
Jesus, I mean, so they would just fucking wall these people off in these, in these portions of the city, and they're just kind of like, well, good luck. We don't fucking, if you know, make us a bunch of shit, we're going to kill you. But, you know, and they'd be like, well, we don't really have food in here. I don't, not my problem. Not my problem. Uh, you figure out how to survive. We're not going to help you at all. And give us stuff or we'll kill you. It's fucking terrible. Uh, after avoiding the ghetto roundup, Zeus and a soil rescue uh, Aron. Hi, he's hiding in the surrounding forest, and that's where they hide. They learn how to survive in the Nalabaki uh, forest, which is about 3,000 square kilometers of wild woods full of swamps, deer, wild birds, bear, and other wildlife. You can actually find YouTube videos of uh, tourists checking out. It's really pretty, but yeah, but very like swampy, very swampy woods. Um, Tuvia is, is, is living in nearby Lida at the time. He'd obtained false peppers. <laughs> Pepper. <laughs> He'd obtained false peppers, you guys. He tried to get real peppers from a produce vendor and that guy was like no no no, you can have these fake peppers but we're fucking we're saving the real ones for the Aryans. that's how fucked up all this no he obtained false papers and could pass as a gentile uh hearing about the mass execution he returns to stankovich to search for his brothers and searches the forest near his family's farm for his brothers uh zeus and a soil have set up this small camp you know uh, as a base to live in they learn early on that if you know if you don't want to have to move all the all the time you got to be extremely careful as far as your location goes, because in mid-February 1942, a massive mistake was made. It was one of their early camps. A group of men out for supplies found a cow and killed it. As they carried it back to camp, a trail of blood was left. German soldiers happened upon it. Then on arrival, you know, the Germans opened fire. The partisans just kind of fucking scattered in all directions. Some ended up in a clearing where machine gun fire cut them down. You know, the camp was destroyed. And then the survivors had to relocate, you know, seven miles west, farther into the forest. By March 1942, nine people had joined Asoil, Zeus, and Aaron in the forest. By April, the group was up to 14. Uh, Asoil and Zeus uh, taught some members how to shoot. This was done without ammunition since it was too precious to be wasted on training. Uh, one had to be careful about noises as well that would attract attention. You know, the uh, the enlarged group followed this established pattern of just, you know, moving around under the cover of darkness. A few men would venture into the village for food. Intimidated by, by guns, the peasants would hand over whatever provisions they had. The Germans, for the most part, avoided the forest, particularly when it was dark, and the group took advantage of this and did most of their household chores in the evening, including cooking. Their meals were made in a large pot hung from a branch. Fire was built underneath. They'd sleep in tents under a tree. These tents served as, you know, temporary shelters built out of branches, which, you know, covered with all kinds of material. And the tents would offer protection from the cold and the wind, but they, you know, weren't as reliable when it came to rain and snow. Uh, no one undressed for the night. It was just warmer and safer to keep your clothes on. So you'd sleep with them on a habit just, you know, followed by almost everybody. The group's survival depended in, in part on its ability to move quickly. The peasants, their food suppliers were poor and therefore unable to feed a large group for an extended time. You know, not to overburden them. The, the group would collect food from different farms. Besides, if, you know, if the natives thought that a group of Jews had settled close to their village, they might be tempted to report them to the authorities. The Germans demanded from the local population the delivery of Jewish fugitives to assure compliance. In addition to punishments, they offered special rewards. The group's movement was also dictated by chance meetings with, with civilians. One can never be sure whether these occasional encounters would lead to, you know, uh, being ratted out and a change of location, you know, would, would be necessary to decrease the chance of discovery. So, you know, it's, it's fucking not easy, man. They're just fucking zipping around in the woods, you know, setting up a little camp here, a little camp up, you know, there, taking a little bit of stuff here, a little bit of stuff there, just, you know, trying to survive, you know, getting some guns here, some guns there, but, you know, can't hardly shoot them because they don't want to make the noise. And then on May 8th, 1942, another huge mass execution in the, in the uh, Navagraduk ghetto takes place. Now, the population of this ghetto had been built back up to roughly 6,000 since the murder of roughly 5,000 Jews uh, six months earlier, you know, because they'd been being steadily brought in from other nearby cities and rural areas. And then all the ghetto inmates are ordered to assemble in the central section. And once again, the Germans and their collaborators split the Jewish population into two groups. 
and 5,670 ghetto inmates are murdered that day. Fuck, man. Second mass execution. Only roughly 250 are left. This time, uh, after this happens, the remaining prisoners decide they have no option left but to begin to kind of risk escaping. And they begin the dangerous task of digging a tunnel out using spoons, forks, and their hands. They would dig a tunnel 600 feet that way underground and later be able to exit uh, from it you know, in, in this kind of single file fashion and just make a fucking run for it. In mid-May 1942, Tuvia, uh, his new wife Sonia, four members of Sonia's family catch up with the soil, Zeus, Aaron, in the forest. And the group slowly increasing in size now continues to wander from place to place. They're a group of more than 20. Tuvia is chosen to be their leader. Primary objective is clear to rescue and save as many Jews as possible. Around this time, prisoners from uh, Novogradoc uh, ghetto uh, have heard of the Bilskis attempt to make contact. By August of 1942, the Bilsky group is now known as the Bilsky Otryad, which is a, Otryad is a Russian for brigade or military detachment. Tuvia became the, com- the commander responsible for running the Otryad, uh, formulating its policies, maintaining its security, a soil second command in charge of day-to-day activities of the unit and the armed men. Zeus uh, appointed head of reconnaissance. Uh, he would collect information affecting uh, the group's experience and safety. His job required familiarity uh, with the area and the local population. And as commander, Tuvia made it clear that his brothers would respect him. Twice he had Zeus whipped, uh, had him tied to a tree in the center of camp, made an example of him. He had a soil whipped as well. Uh, once to establish how much control he truly had, he had Zeus whip a soil. Another time he had Zeus whip a soil, and then uh, a soil uh, whipped Aron, and then Aron would whip an elderly woman, uh, Ruth, who she would then whip a five-year-old, this kid Rachel. Uh, Rachel would then whip a baby. And he, and he, and he had to maintain, maintain order, and I know it sounds extreme, but I fucking get it. You know, it's like, uh, yeah, not everyone is, you know, built to handle those things. Not everyone is going to understand the need to whip a baby, but I, I do. I do. In, in the context of the story, it made, it makes sense when I read that. And Tuvia made it clear that they would, uh, deny other Jews inclusion into their group. They were, they were, they're not, excuse me. He would repeat over and over again that it was better to save one Jew than to kill 20 Germans. And this was a, a position he would never budge, you know, budge from, no matter how tough the circumstances, no matter how much danger. And in order to do that, if a baby, had to be whipped, fuck, you know, so be it. You know, and the whipping stuff, by the way, is total nonsense. Uh, that's total nonsense. I, I made that up. I had to throw in again something. This is so heavy. I had to be ridiculous for at least a second. The only real whipping uh, that was just done was some emotional whipping done by me to you, the listener. No, but the rest of that was was true. And so, anywho, the Bilski Otriad, uh, they began sneaking notes and letters into the ghettos of the Novogradoc, uh ghetto, you know, and the Lida ghetto, and they're urging others to risk death and escape to join them to fight in the forest. A Gentile peasant farmer, uh, this is like one of my favorite parts of this story, this rare ally named Konstantin uh, Kozlowski, uh, he aided with this. Now, the penalty for the, his him helping you know, or, or, or an attempted uh, escape, you know, for these people. It was always death. Just anybody, you know, did anything. Like if the Jewish people tried to get out of the ghetto, penalty, death. You know, you talk to somebody, not in the ghetto, death. You try and help uh, a Jewish person uh, escape from any place, death. And, and uh, you know, and Constantine, he had three grown sons living with him. And, and he's not just putting his life at risk for helping. He's putting all their lives at risk. So what, what a fucking cool dude, man. What a brave son of a bitch this Constantine was. In a way, arguably braver than the Bilskis. I mean, I mean, the Bilskis were insanely brave, insanely brave, not taking anything away from them, but they were being hunted. They, they were, their hand was forced in a sense, you know, they, they were going to be hunted whether they helped others or not, whether they fought back or not. The Nazis were going to try to find them and were going to try to kill them. That was their reality. Constantine, not so much. He could have just kept out of the whole mess and lived his life. 
He was not inherently in harm's way. His sons were not inherently in harm's way. He chose to put everybody in harm's way to do the right thing. And that's incredibly, an incredibly rare thing to do. Incredibly courageous. Uh, so easy to read about stuff like this. I feel like I can think, you know, well, I'd help the Nazis. You know, I'd fucking do it. Or, or, or you know, uh, I, I would rather die, you know, than just uh, let the Nazis do what they, you know, just fucking did. W- would you? Would you do that? You know, and what if you knew that not only would you die, but your kids would be killed if you didn't play ball? Well, what if, uh, you know, what if you'd be raped or, or, your, or your wife would be raped if you didn't follow orders? You know, would you, would you really risk the lives of, of your family to help some strangers because it's the right thing to do? I mean, history has shown us time and time again that most people will not take that risk, uh, which is why it's so goddamn impressive, so noble. Most people always, you know, go along, you know, with whatever, whatever the regime's doing so no harm comes to them, which I get. The, the fucking desire for self, you know, self-preservation. Ironically, though, uh, harm does tend to come to people who don't resist. It just, t- just takes a little longer. Usually when you're turning a blind eye to some ruthless motherfucker, you know, ravaging your neighbors, it's only a matter of time before they come from you for, you know, come for you too. But in this case, if you're Aryan and Gentile, they're not going to come for you. you. You really could just do nothing and be fine. You could pretty much, you know, for, for sure, just keep, keep on living. Your family could go on living, you know, or you could help people you don't even know, help strangers and put the lives of everyone you love in grave danger. Man, I, I get irritated when people get incredulous about like the German people, you know, in, like the, in the Nazi era. You know, the Polish Gentiles turning a blind eye to the Nazis. How could they do that? Because well, they didn't want to fucking die. That's how. Same reason a lot of soldiers became Nazis. They didn't want to die. You know, I'm sure a fair amount of them thought privately that Hitler was a piece of shit. That he was fucked up. And so was his agenda. But they're not going to talk about that. You know, when they're called into service, join or die. You know, that's a, that's, that's fucking, that's a heavy decision. All is such a good reminder, man, not to cave into social pressure to stay quiet about what you think is fucked up in the world. Man, let your voice be heard. Don't let it snowball into what happened in Germany. Uh, All right, man, back to today's tale. Uh, September 1942. Shortly after making contact with the ghetto, uh, the escape tunnel is finished, that little hand-dug sucker, and prisoners begin trickling out of Novogradoc, and they find the Bielski Otriot. And one rainy night in that September, uh, whoever hasn't already escaped, they all just make a break for it. Just, you know, just a couple hundred ghetto prisoners crawl through the tunnel, their hands and knees, to either freedom or death. And, and a lot don't make it. Many are shot or captured once they reach the other side, but 170 do make it, do find their way to the Belsky Otriad. And now the group is over 300 strong. That's badass, man. The winter of 1943 is hard. Ten members of the group are killed while on a mission to gather food and supplies. Now, the farmer who led to these deaths, who ratted them out, his uh, his family later murdered by the Belskis, him and his family. Tuvia prepared his men for retribution. They surrounded the farm and killed them all and burnt their shit to the ground. That would be the penalty for ratting out Jews, for, for killing Jews. And you know what? I fucking like it. Don't let them get away with murder when you can help it, man. Send your message back. Let's get some fucking vengeance. And the Belskis, they, they formed an alliance around this time with some Russian soldiers who, who were hiding out in the forest as well. Uh, now, that's how they got there, the Russians, uh, Stalin, after retreating in 1939, was beginning to send small brigades back into the area of Belarusia slash Poland in the winter of 1942-1943. Small Otriads of soldiers would like parachute into the area, and they were being sent in to protect loyal uh, local citizens, you know, loyal to Russia, and to begin pushing back in, into this territory, and so they could, you know, claim it for Mother Russia at the at the war's end, which they did. And the Belskis began fighting alongside and in collaboration with these Russians against the Nazis. Zeus would lead fighters in collaboration uh, with Russian partisans to to sabotage German trains. The war on rails began. In total, the Belsky partisans traveled over 40 miles, destroying train tracks, effectively cutting off German supply to the front for 51 hours of wartime. This infuriated the Germans, and they put a reward of 100,000 marks on Tuvia's capture, dead or alive, 
In total, the Otrad would derail six echelons of the enemy, bomb 19 bridges, burn down a lumber factory, eight national German estates, blow up 800 meters of railroad tracks, and kill 261 police officers and Nazis. They also prevented the deportation of more than 1,000 residents to the forced camps in Germany. How incredible, man. All from their little little, uh, hideout in the woods. Now, in July 1942, the Nazis, uh, excuse me, July 1943, uh, the Nazi Germans began Operation uh, Hermann in an attempt to liquidate partisan groups in the forest. 20,000, some reports say up to 52,000 German troops sent in to find and destroy Jewish hideouts. Uh, the Bilski Altriad has to abandon a kind of a, a, new, a new camp they were constructing where they, where they had some roughly constructed bunkers, the beginnings of a little town in the woods, and, and they're forced to head deeper now into the woods. They have to cross a large swamp in effort to stay safe. Uh, and again, I saw some of these swamps on these videos, man. They were no joke. You know, it's not like a bayou alligator swamp, but it's a fucking nasty ass swamp in a much colder place, just murky water and mud. During the crossing, children were carried on shoulders. Water was often waist or shoulder deep and bullets are heard. People in need to rest are tied to trees, you know, to keep them from drowning. <laughs> Jesus, mud, is, you know, swallowing their tired legs, but somehow no one dies and they all make it across. Man, just pushing people on fucking wood. You know, oh my God, carrying people. Eventually, the Germans, you know, tracking them, just give up. They're just sick of the swamp. The Bilski Partisan Group is now 75 miles west of Minsk, uh, deep in the Nalabaki Forest, and they begin to build their first permanent base for the now over 800 members of their crew. After years of constant moving, they begin to to construct what they call their Jerusalem in the Woods. This place is amazing. By the fall of 1943, with their numbers reaching over 800, you know, uh, they really get this place going. The camp becomes pretty damn impressive. They had carved out underground dugouts, you know, uh, cut down timber to reinforce the tops of these kind of bunkers. In addition, several utility structures are built. There's a big kitchen built, a mill. That's awesome, man. A mill, a bakery, a bakery, a bathhouse, a medical clinic for the sick and the wounded, a quarantine hut for those who suffered from infectious diseases such as typhus. Herds of cows are now supplying milk. Artisans are making goods, carrying out repairs, providing the combatants with logistical support that would later serve the Soviet you know, uh, units helping them as well. Uh, more than 125 workers toiling in the workshops, which become famous among partisans you know, far beyond the Bielski base. Tailors patch up old clothing, stitch together new garments. Shoemakers are fixing old and making you know, new footwear. <laughs> Unbelievable. Leather workers are laboring on belts you know, and saddles. Metalworking shop is established by Schmel uh, Oppenheim, repairing damaged weapons and constructing new ones from spare parts. A tannery is, con- you know, constructing a, uh, hides for cobblers and leather workers, and it also becomes a de facto synagogue because several of the tanners are devout Hasidic Jews. Carpenters, hat makers, barbers, watchmakers, all serving their community, and you know, and the guests the camps are, you know, many children are attending classes in the dugout set up as a school. The camp even has its own jail and court of law. You know, they had plays. In the evening, for entertainment, it begins to feel more like a, like a, like a real life, not just survival. You know, they built a whole secret town, in the middle of Nazi territory, a fucking town with over a thousand people. Holy shit, is that impressive to me? And uh, and kind of most impressive is that someone somehow uh, was able to sneak in a few wartime issues of the popular American comic book Pootie and Juju uh, to kind of help boost morale. Now, the most popular issue uh, in the camp was issue 36, Rabbi Pudi and Dr. Juju, and uh, where the two go undercover, Pudi dressed as a Hasidic Jew, uh, Hasidic rabbi, and, and Juju as a Jewish doctor, and they make their way to Nazi Germany, where they're then taken to a concentration camp where once inside, they shed their costumes, and the Nazis soon realize these are not two Jewish men. They're actually two non-gender specific, not human cartoon characters who cannot be killed. 
the Nazis shoot them, and the bullets just kind of like, you know, turn their little bodies, their cartoon bodies into Swiss cheese, but then they just kind of rebuild themselves in the next frame and just yell stuff like, too little, too diddle, Nazis, and put it in your lunchbox, Hitler. And the Nazis throw a grenade on them and just shrug, you know, they just kind of shrug, and they'll put it in Judy like, meh. And then, you know, uh, you know, next next uh, frame, they're back together unharmed. And then, uh, you know, and then they free all their Jewish captives. You know, they put all the Nazis in a gas chamber and, and they high five as they kill all those sons of bitches screaming, park it in the shed. And then they lead their, you know, their free Jewish prisoners to camp after camp, kicking Nazi ass all across Europe. Gotta love some Putin juju. Now, if you're confused, new listener, don't be. It's just Putin juju. It's just Putin juju. Just Putin juju. Too little, too little, Putin. Just a silly little cartoon that exists only within the time set universe. And all seriousness, note that uh, they, they built themselves an entire functioning village in the forest which is just again amazing to me to be able to do that you know secretly secretly do that february of 1944 the russians uh seek help again uh uh they ask for a clearing to be made as a landing strip for russian supply planes man uh with this advancement made news begins to reach the group you know from uh from russia they learned that the germans had surrendered to the red army in stalingrad the russians were pushing the nazis out of their territory hope begins to spread man any day now could be their liberation and then July 9th, 1944, a group of Nazi soldiers retreating from the front line accidentally stumbles into their town, and these Nazis open fire, throw grenades. Nine of the you know uh, uh, people living there, the partisans at the Belsky uh, Otriad, they die in the battle. But then the Belsky uh, Otriad mows the rest of those fuckers down. They actually get a hold of four retreating Nazis, they capture them, and then literally beat them to death. They're beaten to death by the camp. Various men and women in the camp just beating them, screaming, hitting them, spitting on them, crying as these German soldiers are begging for mercy, and they give them none. They yell, this is for their mothers, their sisters, their brothers, their fathers. Holy shit. I cannot imagine how cathartic that must have been. I mean, these Nazis really wandered into the wrong part of the woods for them, you know. And then the next day, the war is over. They awoke to a Russian caravan announcing that they were free and that they could go home. Unbelievable. They fucking made it. And then on July 10th, you know, 1944, the Bilsky brothers lead their unit of 1,236 Jewish survivors out of the forest and back into the world. And that miraculous accomplishment takes us out of this time suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. Wow. How intense is that? Hiding in the woods. Literally surrounded by Nazis for, for years, building your own ragtag army to join the Russians and fight the Nazis, going from stealing here and stealing there from local farmers, you know, and doing what you got to do to survive, and then building your own self-sustaining and hidden community, joining up with, uh, you know, Russian fighters and going on raids. And this is just a brief overview of the many incredible and or terrible stories involving the Holocaust and the Nazis' attempted total destruction of the Jewish people. And yet, many... Do not believe that the Holocaust ever happened, despite all these stories, despite all these stories being out there. Many people don't believe the Holocaust ever happened. People who I'm guessing are, are likely to also believe that the earth is flat. Uh, dumb shits. Idiots of the internet. Idiots of the internet. Okay, today a, a video about Holocaust deniers just, just felt appropriate for today's suck, so I just... Went on YouTube and I searched Holocaust deniers and, and I find this recent video. This is a, from a CNN interview posted by CNN on February 8th, 2018, so recently, where Arthur Jones is interviewed, a, a man slash vile, ignorant piece of shit 
who's running for a U.S. Uh, Republican congressional seat in Illinois, even though the Republican Party, to their credit, urging their members not to vote for him. That, that's when you might want to rethink your policies, when your own party is like, fuck that guy, uh-uh, mm-mm, do not, do not, he is not with us. Uh, he's running unopposed for the party's third congressional district nomination on March 20th. He's also a former leader of the American Nazi Party, and he was convicted of both bestiality and pedophilia in 2006. Uh, no, he wasn't. He wasn't convicted of bestiality or pedophilia. I, I just hate the guy so much I wanted to add those things. Uh, he, he was a former Nazi Party leader, though. Just, ugh. Just back on February 29th, 2012, he, he was quoted as saying, The Holocaust is nothing more than an international extortion racket by the Jews. It's the blackest lie in history. And to make this idiotic statement even more idiotic, this guy isn't 30 years old. He's 70. He was born in 1948. He grew up in the years directly following the Holocaust, when hundreds of thousands of survivors still alive, telling their stories, revealing their concentration camp tattoos, Nazi war criminal, you know, uh, crimes or war criminals are, are being put on trial. You know, the trials are broadcast. They're in the papers. You know, this is all going on when he's a young man. He especially should know better. He's a gigantic piece of shit wackadoodle. He has a website, artjonesforcongressman.com, where he talks about his policies. <laughs> the first four listed, like the very first four policies are listed. One, bring our troops home now to defend our borders. Two, no more sanctuary cities. Three, no amnesty for illegal aliens. Four, make English the official language. Man, you put all those together and they really paint quite a picture, don't they? Just, I don't want Americans living in non-white countries or, or fighting non-white wars. I don't want non-whites coming into our countries, and I want as many non-whites as possible thrown the fuck out of this country. And I don't want to hear any more non-white mumbo-jumbo when I'm in, in an Uber or, or buying a taco or getting my lawn mowed. So make the right vote. Make, make the white vote on March 20th. Yeah. February 8th, man, he spoke with uh, CNN's Allison uh, Camerota about his Holocaust stance. They, they, they feature a recent speech where you can watch him speak, and if I was recording in, in the dungeon, I'd play you this, his audio. Instead, I'll just quote it. He says, or more accurately screams, he's like doing this little, this little fucking pep rally, and he, he, the white majority are fed up with all these lying, cheating, thieving, warmongering, child molesting, political pimps and whores of this corrupt and decadent two-party, Jew-party, queer-party system. Now, I would have really screamed that as well for emphasis, but, it, but again, I'm recording in a hotel room. Uh, I'm white. I have a tattoo of Idaho on my left forearm, and you know, uh, it doesn't paint a good picture for me to hear all that stuff and then walk out of my room. And I would, I would hate to disturb somebody greatly and have them think I was just a raging white supremacist doing my own recording in my room. And then he's interviewed. He's interviewed on CNN, and he looks completely fucking insane. He looks exactly like the kind of guy you would imagine saying the kind of things I just let you know he said. He looks, and I'm not kidding, like Emperor uh, Palpatine from Return of the Jedi. He looks like the evil emperor from Star Wars. Like, like he's just been evil and preposterously hateful for so long that it's just like it's, it's made it into his face, right? At one point in the interview, uh, Allison reminds him that he denies the Holocaust and he gets pissed and doubles down on it. He's like, he's like, yes, I deny the Holocaust. It's an extortion racket, pure and simple. If you did any honest investigation of the Holocaust, you'd realize it's nothing more than an international extortion racket run by the Jews to bleed, blackmail, extort, and terrorize their enemy. He has all these, these programmed, these pre-programmed little fucking speeches in his head, you can tell. That, you know, like you push a, he's like an angry doll of some kind, you know, where it's like you get 10 phrases, like you pull the string, and then he's like, the Jews are taking all their money. And then you pull the string again, he's like, they're trying to bleed the international banking market. You, know, you pull him again. We have to get everybody out of our country. Just like a, like the fucking, he's a little hate doll. Uh, and he's, he's committed to his agenda. Uh, you can tell he believes it completely, and that's scary. What's scary, though, is how many other fucking dumb fucks on, on the interweb believe and support him. This is the kind of shit we have to keep fighting. This is why this segment stays in this podcast, man. Being open-minded is great. 
Hearing other people's opinions are wonderful, but when those opinions are just aggressively racist and vile and disgusting and based on nothing but just ignorant, hateful rhetoric and lies, we gotta, we gotta shut that shit down. Fuck those idiots, right? To act like what they say is okay or valid is just to tacitly support them. Fuck them. Uh, piece of shit. Black for 88 uh, is the username posts. Wonder when they are gonna disable the comments. We all know they can't have this many comments from people agreeing with a Nazi as that in quotes, speaking some undeniable truth. <laughs> right, numbnuts, because suppressing the truth is part of the liberal media agenda, right? I, I'm so sick of, of that phrase and that attitude, you know, like when any statement is made by any media person that doesn't fit with what somebody believes. Okay, all right, part of the fucking liberal media agenda. Shut the fuck up, <laughs> right? The, the media agenda is, is just about selling fear, and, and it has been for a long time, and it probably will be for a long time. It's just, there's no... Group of fucking secret liberals being like, we gotta get more gay stuff on there. We gotta get more Jew stuff on there. Blah. No, it's just it's just about making money. Same as the rest of the world. Everything's always about making money at that level, right? They just they just sell you fear. They sell fear, right, to work you up, to keep to get you to keep watching their show. Because the more you watch, the more fucking money they can get for ads. You know, it's it's a very simple you know equation. Uh, I don't give a fuck about catering to a Jewish propaganda, you know, unless, you know, that was A, a thing, and B, it made them a lot of money. Nah, man. Uh, and, then, and then user datdo posts, to find out who rules over you, find who you are not allowed to criticize. Now, I thought that quote was from Vol- Voltaire. And I'm going to be honest, full disclosure, I thought that was a really cool quote the first time I heard it, which was just very recently, just a couple of days ago on the Tinfoil Hat podcast. Uh, we all thought it was a Voltaire quote, because that's what it says in a lot of places online. Do a little bit of digging. Uh, nope. It's uh, from uh, Kevin Alfred Strom, another Holocaust denier and a white nationalist. And he's talking about uh, the Jewish conspiracy specifically, which sucks. Uh, The suspected source of that quote is from Strom's 1993 essay, All America Must Know the Terror That Is Upon Us, which sounds like one of David Icke's book titles. Kevin, by the way, uh, pled guilty to child pornography, a charge in in, in 2008. Not kidding about that one. He he really did get fucking charged with that. So, you know, he's a a wackadoodle uh, piece of shit. And the quote, again, does sound cool, and in a, in a different context, I would agree with it. It sounds a little rage against the machine you know, but no. No, but yeah, they're talking about like, oh, you can't criticize, you know, the, the Jewish people because then you'll, they'll fucking destroy you. No, you, you are allowed to criticize them, but when you criticize all of the Jewish people, like, like as a collective group, you're just – you're being racist. Like I don't know how people don't understand that. Like, well, can, what can I criticize the Jews? Because there isn't a fucking organization called the Jews. <laughs> There's various Jewish people doing different things. There's not a secret fucking group. That's, that's a weird association with their culture. Like they all know each other, right? Which is like whenever somebody does that, they just prove how ignorant they are. Like, like when they're mad at like all blacks or all whites, as if there's these secret meetings we all go to. You know, it's like as if like African-Americans, you know, have like a fucking secret code and then they go meet in a bunker and they talk about how they're going to get rid of whitey and they're going to fucking stir shit up for whitey. Or like white people do the same thing. You know, like I get to tap my shoulder, you know, when I'm at a Starbucks you know, when it's just a bunch of white people in a Starbucks, like, all right, let's get, let's go downstairs. Let's talk about everything. Let's talk about suppressing everyone else for a second. Idiots. Oh my God. User dog hall posts. Uh, she's the ignorant one referring to the interviewer, all that college and still has no brains to think for herself. Uh-huh. Fuck. Uh, aptly named racist. Kevin white posts. I wanted to donate money to fund Arthur Jones campaign for Congress of the state of Illinois, but apparently the only way to donate to, to contribute to his campaign is to pay through PayPal, which is owned by a Jewish merchant, March Levchin. When I attempted to donate to his campaign through JewPal, I received a pro- 
I received a prompt indicating that the recipient is currently unable to receive money. Does anyone know how to circumvent the Jewish-controlled system so we can contribute to his campaign? These fucking complete idiots. I love that. I love that this guy just thinks that, like, because a Jewish person happens to own this particular business, it's part of, like, this system of control, right? How do we get around this, this Jewish system? They're everywhere. They're controlling everything. Oh, this guy is, I don't, I don't know uh, Kevin White. I've never met Kevin White. I am absolutely certain he is the dumbest of fucks. Just a real piece of shit. Just a real horrible person to hang out with, man. It's just, I'm sure he's just a real joy to be around, you know? Uh, just that fucking attitude, you know, of just the, the Jews control everything, you know? There's no way, uh uh-uh, Randy, Randy, Rodney Bobby, I ain't buying no Jew Ford. I ain't, I ain't taking no Jew bus. Uh-uh, not getting me in a, in a, in a Juber, in an Uber, neither. Well, then how are we getting to the Toby Keith concert, Ricky Randy? We're, we're walking, Rodney Bobby. On the side of the damn road? Hell no, I'm walking on no Jew's asphalt. I'm walking on no Jew walk. You know, uh-uh, we're going through the woods on our own two Aryan legs. We'll swing through the trees in our Aryan arms if we see any Jew prints below. <laughs> like, what a fucking, what a weird mental space just to live in where you're just constantly afraid of just, just nonsense. And the support for this asshole politician just goes on and on in this thread. Like, most of the people in this thread are complete support of this guy. Finally, user uh, Martin uh, Heisena uh, roasts all of these anti-Semites with a one-sentence jab that, that sums up the true motivation behind their hate. I love this sentence. It just says, he just says, envy is the root of anti-Semitism. And, and maybe this is a famous quote that I'm just unaware of, and, it, and it's not from him, but I love it, man. Touche. Well put. Exactly. Envy is the root of anti-Semitism, which is so true. It's so true because they're always irritated with these people, you know, in power, and they want to associate like ra- racial, you know, uh, connections are the only reason they're in power. Or maybe they're fucking a better human being than you. Maybe that, but that's but that's that's a much tougher pill to swallow, right? Maybe they don't come from generations of fucking white trash, <laughs> right? Of like lazy t- tra- t- uh, trailer trash, just from multi fucking generations. And their family has been working hard for generations, and that's why. And I say that as somebody who grew up in a trailer for a while. But it's like, I, I, to me, it's just like it's so obvious where it's like, you know, like why wasn't I born into privilege? Well, because you know, uh, no one in my family had went to college, and they were good, great people, and worked hard. But you know, they didn't have good jobs. They didn't have high, high-paying jobs. So of course, I'm not going to be born into, born into wealth. No one was holding this down. No one was like, no, the Cummins will not ever go to college. No, they will not. They will They will scatter from state to state. They will work mainly as laborers. No one was fucking making that happen, making that designation for our family. Just the way shit worked out, you know? I don't, I don't, I don't see this like, ah, oh, the Jews are the, why, the reason that I didn't get into Stanford or Harvard. No, I fucking, the poverty is why <laughs> I didn't get together. Not taking school seriously enough in high school was also another reason I didn't get to go. Oh, and then, and then after this guy posts, envy is the root of anti-Semitism, about 30 other users just shit on him uh, with posts equivalent of, no, Martin, uh, Jews are the Antichrist. Simple as that. That's one of the quotes. And and again, this is why we did today's episode. This There is a dangerous amount of ignorance out there, right? The Holocaust or its equivalent could easily happen again. I mean, you know, it's like I see this, I read this historical stuff, and I'm like, man, people are dumb. And then I fucking read about Flat Earth, and I'm like, man, people are still fucking dumb and angry and opinionated <laughs> god man you know this shit can happen again man maybe with the jews again maybe some other race maybe to your race whatever it happens to be so don't fucking don't don't join these people's ranks man do not listen to darth vader do not give yourself the dark side do not give in to these idiots of the internet 
Well, the Belskis, man, not idiots. They were they were amazing, uh, amazing people, man. Fighting the Nazis during the Holocaust, that for sure happened. Not only did they save over 1,200 members of their group, they also did stuff like like have known Nazi informers assassinated in the area. Like when they would find out somebody was ratting out other Jewish people, they would have that person killed to prevent those informers from, from handing over other Jewish people hiding in places they didn't even know about. So who, so who knows how many people they really saved? You know, they raided the homes of Nazi sympathizers you know, to build themselves an arsenal of guns. And they did, they did all of that when they should have just been grieving the loss of their parents, their siblings, their kids, their wives. And then what happened to them after the war? Where are they now? Uh, well, after the war, Tuvia and his wife, uh, Lilla Lilka uh, Tichten, who also survived the war, went uh, to Israel via Romania, ultimately immigrated to the United States in 1956. They joined another Bielski brother who didn't uh, fight with them, but survived the war. Older brother Walter, who had moved to New York before the war started. Tuvia and Zeus ran a small trucking firm in New York City for 30 years. Uh, he and Loka remained married for the remainder of their lives, had three kids, sons Michael and Robert, daughter Ruth, 10 grandkids. Granddaughter Sharon Rennert uh, made a documentary about her family called In Our Hands, The Legacy of the Bielski Partisans. Uh, when Tuvia died in 1987 at the age of 81, he was initially buried on Long Island. One year after his death, his remains were exhumed, taken to Jerusalem where he was given a state funeral with full military honors in 1988. Uh, after the war, Zeus uh, initially moved uh, to Israel with Tuvia and Ilka and his own wife. He met at the Bilski camp, uh, Sonia. Uh, he died of cardiac arrest in Brooklyn at age 82, 1995. He survived by his wife, Sonia, uh, sons David, Jay, Zvi, and six grandchildren. Jay served in the Israel Defense Force as a volunteer during the 1973 war. Zvi served in the Israel uh, in the, with the Israeli paratroopers during the Lebanon incursion. Matthew and uh, Alon, Jay's son, served in special forces unit within the elite Israeli paratroopers. A soil, after the Soviet occupation of the area and their freedom, a soil joined the Soviet Red Army, and six months later, uh, he was killed, fighting the Nazis in the Battle of Konigsberg, uh, 1945. He never lived to see his daughter, Celia, whom he had fathered with Shaha, a woman he had met at the Bilski camp who uh, he married before heading out to fight again. Aaron Bilski, uh, now known as Aaron, uh, Aaron Bell, is still alive. He's 90 years old, living in Palm Beach, man. Still fucking kicking it. Down in Florida, you know, he's got his shorts pulled up too high. Got some orthopedic shoes on, and he's fucking loving it. Uh, actually, he looks really good, man. You can find recent pictures. He's looking great. He worked for his brothers, Tuvia and Zeus, in New York for a time in their trucking business. He and his first wife, Judith, had three kids, 12 grandkids. Then he remarried, and, uh, and I'm guessing... Uh, if he knows anything about Illinois Holocaust denier Arthur Jones, uh, he hates that guy's fucking guts and would like to do to him uh, what he did to the Nazis. All right. Now it is time for Top 5 Takeaways. Time suck. Top 5 Takeaways. Number one, more than 20,000 descendants of the survivors of the Bilskis uh, help save are, are alive today, including Trump son-in-law Jared Kushner. It's just it's so interesting for me to think about. Like he and Ivanka's three kids, President Trump's grandkids wouldn't be here without the Bielskis. That's just weird for me to like really picture it where it's like, you know, uh, years ago I'd watch The Apprentice here and there. And uh, I was always kind of impressed by Ivanka and her composure and everything on that show. And it's just interesting to me that like her children, would she they would not be here. She would not have the kids she has if it wasn't for the Bielskis. Uh, incredible uh the 2008 daniel craig film defiance based on the bilski brothers and i gotta say yeah damn good movie uh, i got to you know finally watch that I, I missed it somehow use this as a good excuse to watch it the bilskis oversaw the building of a hidden town number three the bilskis oversaw the building of a hidden town in the woods 
where over 1,200 Jewish men, women, and children were not only hiding, but working, dancing, sleeping in actual walled-in structures, even falling in love, man, while the war raged around them. Number four, Illinois politician Arthur Jones is a disgusting piece of shit. And number five, uh, new info, you know, that I hadn't talked about already in this episode. When Defiance hit theaters, there was controversy regarding the film. Uh, it was regarding the portrayal of the Bilski detachment uh, because there were accusations by some in Eastern Europe that they were involved in a massacre of Polish anti-Nazi resistance fighters by pro-Soviet partisans at the Naliboki Forest in eastern Poland on May 8, 1943, uh, where, you know, uh, I think it was about 150 people were killed, and they were, you know, including some kids. And they, they claimed that the Bilskis were involved because they were stationed 37 miles away from the area at the time. Some felt that, uh, you know, they killed not only Nazis, but some of their fellow Polish citizens, and they should have been brought up on war crimes. However, historians feel that they were either not involved or if they were there, that they were not able to stop the larger Russian force from killing these other freedom fighters. Uh, and they were and they were never charged for anything. I, I, I just think this was worth mentioning because it does come up if you research them, you know, and if you see one of those headlines, I just want you to know uh, that I was aware of it. Yes, and uh, there were those rumors, but they seem to be pretty unfounded. Time suck. Top five takeaways. All right, the Bielski brothers have been sucked. Suck dry. Suck so good. Suck so good. Some solid brothers sucking done here today. That's not a weird thing at all to say out loud. Uh, sorry if I wasn't uh, as bombastic as I am normally. It's like uh, the, the, the small town Idaho in me. Does not allow myself to uh, perform the same way in a hotel room as I would in the Suck Dungeon because I feel uh, guilty, especially I'm doing this early. I'm doing this this morning, uh, recording it day of, and I don't want to be the rude guest screaming and waking up other people. Now go out there and grab some tickets to my Flat Earth Tour where you can come see me in a comedy club, and I will fucking say anything I want as loud as I want. All right? I'll be at Hilarities in Cleveland, Ohio next weekend, March 22 to 24th. Get it? It's going to be so much fun. I love that club. So many more shows at DanCummins.tv. Check out the, those dates. Snatch up some ticks. Get some ticks. Get some ticks, you dicks. Uh, thanks to Harmony Velikamp, Jesse Dobner, the entire Time Suck team. Special thanks to, to Bojangles Research Team member, my sister Donna Hale, for coming up with today's topic, kicking off the research. Happy to have her uh, uh, doing some more episodes. And uh, happy to have this topic now as part of the suck lore. And thanks for all the reviews and spreading the suck, man. Po- thanks for posting on social media, referencing the Time Suck on Reddit. You know, I found out, uh, you'll see here in one of the Time Suck updates today that somebody found out about the show all the way over in Iceland due to Reddick, or Reddick, due to J.J. Reddick. J.J. Reddick, you know, fucking NBA player, is talking a lot about Time Suck. No, they found it out because of Reddit. Uh, every review helps, man. Next Monday's episode, back in the Suck Dungeon to record it. I'll uh, hopefully have more than three hours sleep for that one. It's been a long week. It's a good week. Good week this week. And now my wife is fucking in the office. I'm in the office. We're getting organized. Can't wait. Going to make the show even better. Uh, but yeah, this next topic, second space lizard vote winner, Chernobyl. We're going We're going nuclear. And I probably, you know what? I probably said that wrong, that, that word. I'm so anxious about that word now because of all my mistakes. But again, remember, there is alternate pronunciation. So whichever way I'm doing it is correct to somebody. So, so you don't go nuclear over my pronunciation of nuclear, all right? Uh, nuclear. Nuclear. I know that's how everybody wants to say it. My brain, it's, it's something about an accent. My, I just, my mouth doesn't want to say uh, however you're supposed to say it, you know, uh, academically. I'll probably, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll put it in my head as much as possible and, uh, and just fucking get over it. It's going to be a lot of interesting content. We're going back to Russia. We just can't seem to stay out of Eastern Europe for very long for some reason. Not, to, not sure what the hell that is about. Guessing uh, Chikatilo uh, may show up in his homeland. Uh, what's this big deal? It's just I, I radioactive Chikatilo now. Uh, guessing we're going to learn a lot about how radiation works. 
if it's safe to be around Chernobyl or not today. Nuclear reactor, you know, melted down back in 86. People are still speculating today about how much damage has been caused because of it. You know, do a bunch of animals now have multiple heads? Is there frogs out there with four heads that sing in barbershop quartets? Sweet Clementine. Uh, I don't know. How many how many superheroes have been created there? You know, toxic waste apparently makes superheroes. I, I know that from some comic books. We're going to find out next week. We're going to find out so much. And let's find out what you suckers have been up to this past week with some uh, Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Okay, this first update uh, seemed pertinent to this week's suck. Comes in from uh, from Sucker Ben, and Ben writes, Dear Suck Lord Dan, uh, I've been listening to your comedy albums for a f- few years now. I'm actually listening to one of your podcasts while typing this. Yes, feel the suck. Feel it. I just uh, just listened to your comments on, on black lives uh, and how you see them as a justified group. While I agree with other movements for the black community, the Black Lives Matters uh, movement themselves has been labeled as a terrorist organization by the FBI for its destruction of black communities in large cities. And this is uh, in reference to the yeah, the KKK time suck. Uh, I have lived in Charlotte all my life, was around for the riots, and saw the aftermath, and it didn't solve anything. I'm not saying that uh, that black Americans haven't struggled in the past, but they aren't particularly suffering in the same way. Now, white people are actually killed by police more often than blacks. These don't this, These crimes don't make it on the news as much because it's not as interesting, I feel. That's just only my opinion. I'm also not saying that what caused these protests was good by any means, but riots and destruction is no way to react. Sorry for making this email so long. I appreciate your open-mindedness. You are truly awesome. Oh, that's nice. One of the funniest people ever. Uh, I don't know. I don't know about that, but I like that you think that. Keep thinking that. Keep telling other people that. Your podcast really speaks to me. Again, sorry for the long email. I hope to see you in Charlotte. Yeah, get out to that show. Uh, Reject the temptress Lucifina. Uh, Don't turn it into a... Don't turn it into an everyday Chikatilo. May you ride away from her on Bojangles. And may his speed be powered by Nimrod. Sincerely, longtime fan, new time, new time sucker, uh, Ben. Yes, thank you, Ben. Uh, you know, I have heard from other listeners that, that listened to that KKK episode about the Black Lives Matters organization. Uh, you know, in fact, being pretty racist themselves it, it, sometimes uh, to to other African Americans, uh, which is sad and destructive, and that's too bad. Uh, I've also heard some, you know, some are openly, uh, you know, some of these organizations, you know, uh, some of the groups of the Black Lives Matter organization are openly racist against white people, which is. Uh, terrible, you know, hating uh, any color of people is racist. Now, regarding really quick though, regarding more whites being killed by police than blacks, that's actually technically true, but also a misinterpretation and a common mis- mis- yeah, misinterpretation of the data out there. And, and I'll explain what I'm talking about here. Here's some results of a two, some 2017 data released by Newsweek on December 29, 2017. Now, it says police in the U.S. killed 1,129 people so far in 2017, and only a quarter of those killed were black, but they, the African-Americans only compromised 13% of the population. So in addition to being 25% of the victims – Black people are also three times as likely to be killed by police as white people, according to this report. And it was done by Mapping Police Violence, and it was released Thursday, uh, you know, the time of uh, this article's release. So you see, like, well, the total number, this is what happens a lot of times with numbers out there uh, on the web. You know, people can skew statistics to serve their agenda and do so all the time. And I always think about, like, per percentages with stuff where it's like, you know, and you can use this argument in, in a number of ways where it's like, well, how come there's, you know, uh, like, like sometimes I think like when people get angry, it's like, oh my God, there's only, let's say in this example, one African-American who is doing this kind of job or whatever. But I always think, yes, but how many, how does that represent the total population? Like, let's say there's uh, 
four positions available for a job and someone says, well, you know, half of them, you know, better be African-American. Well, that's not representative of the population. You know, if, if the percentage is only like, you know, whatever, like what to say, uh, 13%, th- okay, then it makes sense for 13, you know, percent of that, those positions, which doesn't really work well in my numbers here for four, for four, <laughs> since not, that's not 25%. But, but you know what, you know what I mean? It's like, it should be representative of the percentage of the population and, and with crime, you know, and, and with uh, police uh, reaction on crime, unfortunately, uh, the police do kill a much higher, much higher percentage of black Americans than white Americans, which is disturbing and, and, you know, and alarming. And that's why there's so much uproar about that. So, yes, while the total number is less, the total number is less because the total number of African-Americans compared to, you know, Caucasians in this country is still significantly uh, less. There are significantly less African-Americans than there are Caucasians, you know, in, in the United States. So, uh, and back to back to circle to your original point here, or, or circling back to your original point. Uh, yes, at the time I recorded that episode, I did not realize the Black Lives Matter movement was associated with so much negativity. I, I had not been around it personally, and uh, yeah, so that bummed me out when I heard all that information, you know. And uh, and you're right about the media. I, I I do think they're guilty of sensationalism all the time. I do think certain crimes are sexier than others. Uh, I think both like black crime and the police reaction to black crime gets way too much media attention. Uh, you know, sometimes I don't think they're doing it for the right reasons. They're not doing it to expose, you know, bad things going on. They're just doing it to push ratings and fucking whip people up and make them angry. And, uh, and that is, you know, not always uh, a good thing. Clearly, uh, you know, spread it around, man. I mean, you know, make your crime reporting, you know, fair racially, like a TV show cops does. You guys ever, you guys still watch that show still on. I'm pretty sure they're still doing new episodes. It's been like, you know, bad boys, bad boys. What you gonna do? That's actually a, a, a weird uh, example of equality. I don't know if you, I've watched probably too many episodes over the course of my life. But, uh, you know, the cops, they really fucking go after a little bit of everybody in that show. I'm not even kidding. They, they go after, you know, white, black, brown dumb shits with equal gusto. And it's refreshing to see there's white cops, black cops, Hispanic cops, Asian cops, you know. Chasing after Asian criminals, Mexican criminals, fucking South American criminals, fucking Eastern European criminals, African criminals, just fucking a little bit of everything. And it's so great. You know, afros and mullets and fucking, you know, slick back pomade hair all being chased after on cops. It's great. Okay, this next update from uh, Brady uh, Treyer. Crack me the hell up. And <laughs> the email just says, the order of What? Just listening to the Aleister Crowley episode, and I swear to Nimrod, the first five times you said it, I heard the order of the golden dong instead of the order of the golden dawn. The worst part is I thought it was fitting for him and didn't question it those first five times. <laughs> it's clearly way too early for me to listen to the suck. Keep on bringing the suck no matter what time of day. Sincerely, Mademoiselle. So glad I know what that uh, stands for now, those letters. Doctor, Mademoiselle, Dr. Brady, Trayer, Esquire, the seventh. You are hilarious, Brady, and your name is the best. And, uh, yeah, that would make it, uh, kind of fitting, you know, that'd be, would be a wacky name, but it wouldn't be out of, out of character. If you haven't heard the Aleister Crowley episode yet, <laughs> you listeners, yeah, he's a weird dude. He's part of the older order of the golden dawn, but order of the golden dong. I like that better. That sounds like a fun order to be a part of, uh, sounds, sounds weird. You know, I just picture a bunch of dudes in costumes, you know, I guess it doesn't have to be dudes, women and dudes just like worshiping just, just this giant golden fucking wiener statue. Okay, next update. Very kind one from Time Sucker Lex. He says, hey, Dan, I'm going to try to make this quick. 
I'm using the Android app, so sorry for the autocorrect bullshit. I just wanted to let you know you've made a major improvement on my depression. I've been dealing with it on and off for years. These past two years have been really difficult with the hurricane and some family issues. Told my girlfriend that I was depressed again. She told me that if I feel like hurting myself, I need to get help or at least call the suicide hotline. Thanks to you and the Cobain episode, I feel like I had the perfect answer to this. Fuck yeah, buddy. I told her, don't worry. I won't try. I really don't want to end up in Nimrod's asshole. <laughs> this podcast has been the perfect way for me to distract myself when I get down and love learning some new shit. And uh, and I love learning some new shit. Uh, can't wait to see you in San Antonio. Yeah, buddy. Oh, and I'm a space lizard, and I just listened to the fifth episode with your wife, letting us know that she will be assisting you with the podcast. Oh, thank God. She's like the anti-Lucifina, so all hail St. Lindsay. Unless that offends her, then my bad, but thanks for helping with this. Uh, keep on sucking, Lex. Wow, Lex, that's so nice, man. I love how happy this makes you. Uh, yeah, man, I don't want to end up in Nimrod's butthole either. It's fucking, that's hell, man, Nimrod's butthole. Don't let Lucifina trick you into wandering in there. She'll try, she'll try and get you in there. Just come on. Just come come join me. I'll just be in Nimrod's butthole. Get in here. Uh-uh. Be gone, Lucifina. Mm-hmm. And St. Lindsay, uh, I think she will like that very much. You know, I think she'll I think she'll like that a lot. Although she does have a certain amount of Lucifina in her as well, and I like it, man. There is for sure a reason. I have a tattoo uh, of a half angel, half devil lady on my on my left shoulder. Yeah, like like a little bit of naughty. Uh, you keep on fucking sucking too, Lex. One more from a Norse sucker writing in about the Norse episode last week. Hi, I'm a listener from uh, Iceland. Found the podcast on Reddit. Oh, and, and in Iceland. So currently living in Iceland. Found the podcast on Reddit. That's what I was talking about earlier. And have been listening nonstop since. I love the Norse God episode. Was afraid of some butchering mythology, but it, of course, was well-researched and very well done. Oh, thanks, man. I was nervous as shit for that one. I just wanted to add that Loki's father in the Marvel movie was a frost giant named Laffy, but that's a female name like mine ends in E-Y. That is the only thing that bothered me in the Marvel movies, and I can't recall if you mentioned that point. No, I did not. So thank you for bringing that up. Uh, also, your pronunciation was good. <laughs> I, oh, man. I, I hope so. I, I, I know I messed up a lot of stuff. Uh, I especially noted that my siblings' names, Freya uh, and Storla, as in Snorri Storlason, uh, my sister has uh, no problems with her name outside the country, but my brother gave up on making people say his outside the country. Keep on doing a great show. Love the Nimrod, uh, Bojangles, Lucifina, and the Juju comic side stories. <laughs> great. Uh, and if you've gotten you've gotten me a couple times with the made-up stories, which I love. Oh, yes. Thank you, and I hopefully uh, I get to see your shows one day. I hope so, too. I hope we get to see you in Iceland. I, I, I would love to make it out there. And then, by the way, after all those kind words about pronunciation, I read your name, and I'm like, oh, shit. Uh, I hope I'm going to get this right. Uh, Valet? Valet, Valet, I hope it's Valet, uh, and then Yogelstatur, Yogelstatur, is that right, Valet Yogelstatur, Yogelstatur, I feel like I have to say it with an accent again, uh, I found an Icelandic author that shares your surname of Yogelstatur, and, uh, and again, it's tricky to get my tongue to cooperate, but I think that's, I think that's gotta be close, right, man, love listening, uh, or I love that you're listening in Iceland, man, I really wanna go there someday, really, really, really wanna go there, uh, gotta make it to Snorri Sturluson's old stomping grounds, Gotta gotta track me down a fucking spider horse to ride, you know. Maybe race a goat drawn chariot. Uh, thanks for listening, Valley. Uh, spread the word over there so I so I can do an Iceland show. Would love to get out to Reykjavik. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Well, that was all, you know, for today, time sucker gals and guys, and Icelandic listeners. Don't deny the Holocaust. And uh, and do be sure to grab your discount at uh, Chikatilo's Wrestling Academy. What's this big deal? Uh, you know, get get that get that discount. Get those fucking wrestling lessons. Keep supporting our sponsors and keep on sucking.
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.